Love is actually not blind. It's just love is like a brain injury. Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 14 of Good is in the Details. I am your host, Gwendolyn Dolsky, and we're kicking off 2020 talking about love. Now, what does it look like in the brain? What is the science behind it? I have just the guest. Check out this interview with Dr. Jenna Kravitz. She's at the UCLA Medical Center. She has been a regular guest on Dr. Drew's shows as an expert in neuropsychology, and you may have seen her on CNN and HLN. So if you have any thoughts about this interview, please feel free to DM me on Instagram. You can tweet me at gdolsky. Share the episode with a friend if you like it. And if you're really enjoying the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Here's the interview. Hey, welcome, Jenna. So nice to be here. Dr. Jenna, what is neuropsychology? Neuropsychology is just a branch of clinical psychology. It does take an extra couple of years of training Mm -hmm. um, after the doctoral work, but it's basically the study of the relationship between behavior and emotion and brain function. So it's really just looking at how the brain and the nervous system affect our behavior and our resulting emotions. Yeah. What, um, before we dive into our topic, um, I'm curious, what drew you to neuropsychology? I actually, in college, which you knew me back then, uh-huh. um, I wanted to go to medical school and I got really sick um, in, in college, if you remember, okay. with Crohn's disease. And at the time, my doctors had said, you know, I don't, we don't think you should go to medical school. You probably can't handle it. And stupid me, you know, I listened (laughs) to them. You should never listen to people who say that. Oh, wow. Um, Ten years later, my physician said to me, a different physician said, if you couldn't go to medical school, then we aren't doing a good enough job. And I thought that really hit home. But so after college, I... I had an undergraduate degree in psychology, and I went and got a master's thinking, well, that's the next step. And during the program, I really fell in love with intellectual assessment, so IQ testing, basically, Mm -hmm. and thought, well, how can I work this? And in order to be a neuropsychologist, you have to go get a doctoral degree, and you have to do a fellowship in neuropsychology. And I really wanted to work with older adults um, and study memory disorders and Alzheimer's disease. And so that's that's what I've done. And it was sort of a second choice to being a neurosurgeon, but that's how I fell into it. Amazing. Yeah. Okay. So what can you tell us about the brain on love? So there's different types of love. There's that lust and attraction phase, Mm -hmm. right, in the beginning. And then it moves towards like an attachment phase later on. I heard that's an evolutionary pull. Is that true? Is there any truth to that? That that's what the attract, like where you just can't keep your hands off somebody, that that might be your genes pushing you to... Well, it's also... It's also mediated by hormones. Uh-huh. Um, so <laughs> we have these neurochemicals that help our brain to work in certain ways that also motivate some of our behaviors. So one thing that happens when you are in lust and are very attracted to someone and you're getting to know someone, that initial stage, is this surge of dopamine, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a it's it causes euphoria and pleasure. And so dopamine is like a good, like quick drug fix. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But you also get surges of norepinephrine and adrenaline in these times. And that also, that will result in things like your heart racing or not being able to sleep well at night. Yeah. um, Because you're loss of appetite. Loss of appetite. Right. Exactly. It's a great (laughs) diet plan. (laughs) 
Fall in lust. <laughs> yeah. True. You lose like it's five really pounds right away. In like a week. I wish I could be on a love diet all the time. <laughs> um, but at the same time, what happens is we have this other neurotransmitter called serotonin, right? Mm-hmm. And serotonin is the happiness hormone. And so serotonin actually drops surprisingly, it drops. And it almost mimics someone who has an OCD brain. And so people like claim to be happy, like when they're in lust, when they're attracted to someone. But the more accurate description is that they're like obsessed, right? Like how many times do you check your phone when you meet a new guy? Uh How many times do you check his Instagram or his social media to like see what he's doing? The serotonin drops at this, at the same time, the cortisol level, cortisol is our stress hormone. Cortisol but and this causes things like having more energy and that also contributes to that inability to sleep or eat you know so there's a lot of things happening when you are lusting for somebody mm-hmm. um and and then there's pleasure centers in the brain there's a pleasure center made up of different structures that also get activated yeah. okay during this time but it, you know what's interesting is that The area of our brain that uh, would normally register like stress emotions, because when your cortisol increases, it's like your fight or flight will kick in and your body knows to be on alert for something. That's Mm -hmm. evolutionary, right? Mm -hmm. And so what happens is that the area of the brain that normally would register that stress hormone is the amygdala. And the amygdala, when you're in lust like that, it actually takes a little break and chills out and it kind of (laughs) deactivates. For a little while. and But this is why you could be dating someone and not see the red flags. Yes. You fra- is that, that's where the idea of love is blind. Yes. Love is blind. Love is actually not blind. It's just love is like a brain injury. Um, the other problem is that our prefrontal cortex in the front of our brain, um, our prefrontal cortex is in charge of things like judgment and decision making and problem solving, things like that. And that's why I said it's like a brain injury because the prefrontal cortex is actually also kind of deactivated. Mm-hmm. So judgment kind of goes out the door too. This is why when your friends are in love, you just have to say goodbye to them for a while. Like I would say a friend in right. love is a friend gone missing for a while. Yep. And they don't. And like most times friends will see that maybe the partner isn't the best choice or they'll see the things that are wrong and they'll be like, you know, have you ever noticed that so-and-so does this or that? And you're like, no, no, you know, he's great. Yeah. (laughs) He's so great. I know. It's like he likes movies. I like movies. We're perfect (laughs) for each other. (laughs) The other thing that happens is that our cognition – um, so cognition, right, is all of our mental functions, attention, memory, executive functions, language functions, visual, spatial functions, everything. When you're in that first initial phase of love, everything gets foggy. Like you can't even concentrate, uh-huh. right? Because you just think of that person all day because that surges the dopamine. You you feel like euphoric when you even think of them, right? How long does this last? Well, it's different for different people and different <laughs> relationships, but um, – You know, that's a good question. I don't know exactly, but I would say, you know, probably the first year of relationships is like that. And then, you know, you you evolve into like more of an attachment sort of uh, relationship. And our our brains also change the the chemicals change as we move into that. So your your brain starts to become more tolerant of the extra neurochemicals. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you build up this tolerance. And then what happens is you you end up feeling like more of a sense of security and stable in this relationship. Like, okay, the person's not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. You've, you've, your well-being is taken care of. And, and then like all of those big chemicals that are 
that are causing euphoria, your brain has also acclimated to that those large amounts of them. Mm-hmm. So you don't necessarily feel the euphoria every time the guy walks in the door or you see his Instagram or you see the number pop up on your cell phone or, you know, whatever. So I'm wondering, does this change with age? So it's like, when, you know, when you're young, it feels like it's your whole world. And then when you get older, you have some awareness of, oh, that's what's happening. I, or no, or does it, is the fogginess? I don't, I don't think it changes with age. I have patients who meet a new partner in their 70s uh-huh. and talk about butterflies and heart racing. <laughs> it's true. I love it. Right? That's the thing about working with older adults. They're so lovely, but they experience the same things we do. But the hits are, you know, one thing about older adults in love is the heartbreaking part when someone dies, right, Mm. in the partnership. And there's actually a condition. It's a type of cardiomyopathy that can happen when you have a couple who maybe they've been married 50 years, right? Mm -hmm. And one person in, in the dyad passes away. Oftentimes, what you'll see is someone will start complaining of other physical symptoms, you know, reasonably so. Mm-hmm. And they have this type of cardiomyopathy, and it I can't even pronounce the name of it. But essentially what doctors call it is a case of real heartbreak, uh-huh. and it can be fatal. So what you see sometimes is when a couple has been together for so long, when one person dies, the other person will usually die within a year or two. Is and they the die for men and women? Of a broken heart. Yeah. I thought, okay— it, For some it, reason, type of I real thought that problem, yeah. men had a harder time than women. That's not true? Women are pretty yeah. resilient. More Women are yeah. oftentimes more resilient. Um, that's, that's what I'm wondering. And women also, just a side note, they also last longer in cardio, like in marathons and everything. Yeah. No, <clears throat> they are not faster. They're, they last they're, longer. have healthier hearts, you mean? Well, part of the reason apparently is because of the extra layer of fat that it acts as a coolant. And so it allows for them to keep a pace. So men will always be faster, just generally speaking, but women last longer. And it's kind of like in life. That's true. (laughs) Men men peter out. That's true. um, For that reason, I was thinking that I I had heard, so Mm -hmm. I didn't know if there was any truth to it, but that men are have a harder time surviving the death of a spouse than women do. Or maybe it's a network of friends, like women have more gal pals. Or I, I think it's certainly much harder for a man who's been married for 50, 60 years. Uh-huh. His life partner is gone. Oftentimes they're so sad that they don't want to eat, mm. right? I don't know that – I don't know enough about the gender differences in at the end of life when, you know, how men and women cope differently other than there are a lot of factors involved. Some people will say – For example, I have a patient whose wife has had dementia for probably four years now, Mm -hmm. and she's unrecognizable to him. And in his mind, he's been grieving the loss of her for years. Yeah. And when she actually passes, I don't know that he'll have such a hard time with it. I think he might feel relieved, for example, because he spends his days taking care of her, but he doesn't necessarily want to every day anymore. He wants to travel. He wants to go to concerts. And- and he feels guilty about doing those things. It's, that seems so hard because the person is no longer the same person. And the person with, let's say, maybe even Alzheimer's or something like that may even start to like somebody else. I mean, forget the marriage that they're no longer without the memory. They're no longer the same person. Are you in the same contract? Well, that depends who you ask. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's more, you know, there's religious values that are attached to that. There 
are human needs that need to be met yeah. at times, although the human needs are different in older adulthood, you know. The gender differences that I know of in love happen at the beginning of love. Okay. And so, for example, yes, men's testosterone tends to decrease while really? women's testosterone levels increase. Huh. in um, a lust relationship in that beginning phase. Maybe that's why women are so like, I want to touch you all the time. I want to, you know, they're very <laughs> motivated for the end game. Whereas the men with, with the testosterone lowering, actually, it helps them to not look around as much, right? They're they mm-hmm. one person. Mm-hmm. Um, so it drives a little bit more loyalty. That's one gender difference. When can you tell that it's starting to wear off? So let's just say, what is that transition moment? You said something about there's feelings of security as opposed to obsession. Is it that one day you wake up and you realize that you forgot to stare at every text that they ever sent? (laughs) Or like, I don't know. Or look at their Instagram? I think I have the answer to that. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Um, I... I don't know that there's a moment. I think, you know, relationships evolve. And the more you have a partner who makes you feel secure and safe in the relationship is those moments are important in calming your own anxiety about, is this too good to be true? Is he going to go away? And I think when your partner does a good job of that is when you really start to feel like, okay, I'm safe here. Okay. Yeah. And to be honest, I mean, I was married for a long time, right? And I can honestly say that through my marriage, I still had butterflies when I would see his name pop up on the phone, even after like 15 years, Uh right? Now I'm divorced, right? And so I don't actually have those butterflies when he calls. I actually have the opposite. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But there are some people in my life that when when I see their name pop up on the phone, I lose my appetite or I get butterflies. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, there's certainly a point that it turns from the lust to something that resembles more of a traditional relationship. Yeah. But my goal in life, honestly, the next time I get married, I want to marry someone that I always am, like, wanting to touch and be attracted to (laughs) and and always gives me butterflies when the phone rings. I think that's – yeah, it's just really sweet when you see couples that they're still affectionate with each other and they want to do the whole hand-holding or they still make the effort. I wonder if that's what it is that this transition is from – when you go from the lust to choice. Like you wake up every day and it's not, you're not driven by a brain fog. You're driven by, you look at that person and you say, I am deciding to be with you. Sure. And that's what marriage is though. I mean, yeah. marriage like you snore is a and fart in your sleep day. and I continue to be here. Yeah. I every that. day you wake up and choose to be married to someone. And you know what? The thing about it is we live in a country where you can choose one day not to be. Yeah. Like, that's and that's kind of liberating, but yeah. it also makes that choice to stay in that relationship even more powerful. Is that you have I, yeah. the option to leave? I think that that is what happens when people say that the person just wasn't paying or they were taken for granted. Is that they have taken for granted the fact that that is a choice to be there and they don't have to. Yeah, I think. Yeah, she's nodding. I'm getting approval from Dr. Jenna. <laughs> well, I've been through it, you know, and that's a whole other podcast. Okay, um, the demise of my marriage, but. No, I gender differences, you know, a person in love is a person in love. There are differences in the levels of hormones that are activated. We all have the same brain structures. Mm-hmm. You know, most of us do. We process emotions the same way. So there aren't gender differences in that structurally. But I think what's maybe more interesting is how heartbreak affects us. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we were 
talking about this earlier, but let's get into it. There were different values. Well, no technology. Finances, I think, would be enough to keep somebody, but to keep a woman with a man. No, it went even before that, Gwen. Uh If you think about when women were gatherers and men were hunters, this was a partnership that worked for survival. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a really great podcaster. It's actually an audible. So it was a lecture and it's called In Sync with the Opposite Sex okay. by Alison Armstrong. You guys have to listen to this. Noted. It is so good. And she talks about gender differences all the way back to when men are hunters, women are gatherers, and they relied on each other for survival. Mm-hmm. You know, and so we're coming from that, right? But there's different values a hundred years ago. I mean, we I saw this really beautiful quote from an older adult who said something, and don't quote me exactly, but it said it was something like, um, the reason that people stayed married back then, um, as opposed to now, is that when something was broken, we fixed it. We didn't throw it away and get a mm-hmm. new one. It really spoke to me because as somebody who's 40 and single, right, what I came to realize pretty quickly is that I could be the juiciest peach in the whole tree. And all my guy had to do was turn on his phone and open up a dating app. And there were like thousands of other juicy peaches ready to go, Mm -hmm. right? It's just available. And it wasn't available like that. People had different values back then. So and now we have, you know, we had feminism happened. And I mean, there's so many things that have happened since then. So I think those are all contributors as to why the older adults we know tend to stay married. And the younger people that we know um, are more forthcoming with divorce. Yeah. I mean, when I think about this idea of economic survival, maybe that's what it is, is that if a woman doesn't have as many financial options, I mean, hell, just in LA County, how hard is it to just have a one bedroom on a you know, on a pay or you can imagine somebody staying in a relationship. And so I think that what happened, maybe this is partly with feminism, but when you have more um, more women in the workforce and getting paid more, then that offers them the opportunity. Also, they're around more men. They see that there's more out there. They have more. <laughs> you gave me a look. What does well, that look for? Men are more likely Men are more likely to cheat with women that they that work for them that can enhance their career, like their assistants or the people who enhance their career, who can drive more income. So then is that the the myth that women sleep in, sleep their way up to the top? Is it actually the opposite, that men are doing that to? Well, men are just, they're around these women every day, uh-huh. and they see that these women enhance their careers and, and ultimately their, their status. And men, the number one place to uh, be reeled into an affair or something sticky like that is in the workplace for men. But yeah, I mean, the opposite would be for women, that women can sleep their way to the top or, you know. But then it's also it's also difficult <laughs> because there can be genuine relationships that happen in the workplace mm-hmm. and that it doesn't necessarily have to be this aim for some kind of economic gain. Or when there's a role, a role change. So for example, you have an affair with your assistant and then your assistant becomes your wife and she's not your assistant at work anymore. Now she's just You know, she's a housewife. Her role has changed. She's not enhancing your career, your status. And now she have the value. So let's dig into heartbreak news. What goes on when there is a breakup? In the brain. Yes. So a lot of things happen in the brain when there is a breakup. I know it's actually quite complex. But here's what I can tell you. There have been a number of studies that used imaging between MRI, fMRI, PET scans to see what happens in the brain when... People are going through heartbreak or are heartbroken. And 
So what I can tell you is that the same areas are activated that cause emotional and physical pain. So emotional pain can actually feel physical, Mm -hmm. right? Because the area of the brain that's activated mediates pain, emotional, physical, right? And I think part of it depends on how it was done. But the body also releases that cortisol, that stress hormone, right, and adrenaline. And that can cause physical symptoms like literally nausea and difficulty breathing and that you feel like you got kicked in the gut, right? Where like, okay, so a person who's recently in love, Mm -hmm. okay, that person's brain looks a little bit, it can look a little bit like a drug addict's brain because you're getting these surges of dopamine that feel good. Mm -hmm. Right. When somebody breaks up with you, you go through withdrawal and your brain looks the same as somebody who's in a a substance withdrawal, like a chemical withdrawal. Mm -hmm. And that's what drives people to do crazy things like send 28 text messages and, you know, (laughs) and because because you're desperate for more. You just want a little bit of that feeling. That's why, you know, take if a guy breaks up with me. And I don't hear from him for a week. And then he texts me, how are you? I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. He's back. Right? And that feels good for like a minute. (laughs) Uh (laughs) That feels good because it's that surge (laughs) of that dopamine that I got my fix. You know, the brain in heartbreak is desperate to feel better. It's desperate for more of the happy hormones and less of the stress hormones. And that's what drives behavior that makes people look insane. That's what a neuropsychologist does, right? Uh-huh. Studies yes. brain functions and no, behavior. No, that's perfect. That's perfect. <laughs> um, so that's kind of what happens in the brain. And, you know, recently I can share that, like, I was dating someone recently that I was really, really smitten with. Mm-hmm. And one day he introduced me to his mom. Mm-hmm. And literally hours later, he never responded to a text message again. Oh, Wow. And, and, okay, I was introduced to his mom over FaceTime. First Uh of all, that should have been my first cue that the dude is whack. But anyway, (laughs) a little weird. So, yeah, calls me on FaceTime. Hey, this is my mom. We were just talking about you. I Uh wanted her to have a name with a face. And, by the way, this this talking with this particular person has been going on for months and months, right? And I'm like, okay, well, I'll talk to you later. So I send a quick text later that says, hey, you want to grab dinner tonight? And I hear nothing back Uh ever again. It's been three months. I've heard nothing back to this day. Wow. Ghosting is one of the worst things you can do to people. And in this place where I was so confused, I couldn't understand what I did wrong. I couldn't understand why I wasn't good enough. You know, you get in your head. You're like, women do this. Women think, well, what was wrong with me? You know, did I smell bad? Was I too fat? Was I too skinny? You know, like women do this. Mm -hmm. Women are in their heads about this, trying to find a reason. And so in this sitting with myself, you know, I too am human and started trying to figure out why did this feel so bad, right? On paper, this guy is probably not the guy for me, mm-hmm. not educated enough, not intellectually stimulating enough. Well, I'm just going to be real here, like not <laughs> feel bad about having some sort of standard for an intellectual equal. But there were a lot of great things about him, which is why I was on the hook for like four years with this guy. <laughs> so four years. Well, and you- I dated him first four years ago, and then we we then and then he came back, and then he ghosted again. I gave him a lot of grace because it was a very stressful time in his life. But anyway, the point is that this time around, I was thinking, why does this feel so bad? Mm-hmm. And I was desperately looking for answers. How can I feel better? Why does this hurt so much? Okay. Yeah. 
And so I started looking things up. And, you know, being a researcher, I went into the library and found articles as to what happens when attachments like this get jacked up. Yeah. And so one of the articles I had read was amazing. It was this study done in an fMRI. And what they found was that people who had been abandoned like that, like ghosted, we'll call it abandoned, because when you have an attachment to someone and they just bail the ghosting, that feeling, that experience activates the same area of the brain as physical abuse. It can feel that awful, like when a, when somebody, an attachment abandons you. And so I started thinking like, this feels like that. I don't know why, but I, you know, so the million dollar question is, how can you rewire your brain to get over it? And so one, I, I've read a lot of different studies and most studies will say it takes about three months to move past that or to, to at least be able to feel better about it. And then there are some studies that will say if you were married for a long time, that it could take half the amount of time that you were married to actually get over it. Oh, wow. Depending on whether you were the person who left or the person who was left. So there's, I think it's inconclusive because, you know, it depends who you ask at what phase of the breakup. I mean, there's so many different variables here. But what I can tell you is that as someone who's been through it, you know, a couple of times now, that it does activate that area of the brain that feels that is activated when you've feel physical pain when someone beats you up, you know, who you, who, who you love and they beat you up. And I think that's, that's painful. I think that's good to know so that we can maybe be a bit more generous with ourselves when we're going through a heartbreak. Just recognize, oh, okay, this is the process. This is what's going on. And then also with our friends, because sometimes you want to say to your friends, just get out of it. Or get the over person, it. Get, yeah, the person was a loser. <laughs> when it, and it's not helpful. Mm -hmm. And to maybe just give ourselves a bit more grace and say, oh, okay, this isn't just somebody leaving me. I'm experiencing this kind of pain. Allow it. Maybe crank out some really shitty poetry, you know, like do something with it. And one thing that I know that has helped the, me is that when I've gone through that, is that I get in touch with people who were in my life, who were my friends before the person was ever there. So it reminds me of, oh yeah, you had a life and an existence and a happiness before this ever was part of your life. But in the short term, people will draw different experiences to make them feel better to, again, get that surge of dopamine uh -huh. to feel better. And so that's why, you know, you'll see even in movies – Girl gets broken up. Girl goes to the grocery store and buys a gallon of ice cream because that makes her feel good. It's like Bridget Jones' diary. Yes, yeah. in the moment. Yeah. You know, I think I've probably been to Cold Stones like five times, just <laughs> loaded up on toppings. No, but, you know, people have different coping mechanisms that help them to create these surges of hormones that they need to feel better, whether that's exercising. Yeah. You know, some people will get that adrenaline rush and those increased endorphins by exercising. Um, some people will overeat because overeating tends to stimulate the pleasure hormone. You know, some people I have, you know, I have friends that like volunteer or whatever you have to do to feel good in the moment when you're going through that, you just have to do it. And if that means going back to friends who knew you way back when, then that works too. Mm -hmm. It's just you want to just self-care. You know, yeah. you, you have to give yourself some grace yeah. that this is going on. But I think also what's important is I hope that if you're listening and you're somebody who's a ghoster, to understand really that there are some serious consequences, neuro, you know, 
neurologically and biologically, when you abandon someone like that with no um, explanation, no yeah. warning, you know, that it really can do a number on someone's self-esteem, but that really they're experiencing this, they could be experiencing this intense pain. Okay, so this is one of my questions, because when I first heard of what ghosting was, <laughs> and there was a part of me who was thinking, isn't that just what we did when we were younger, when you just break up with somebody? Like, I no, didn't no, understand. No I did, yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking, isn't that what you do? You just, when you're done, you're just not around the person? But um, I didn't understand what the big deal with ghosting was. But I guess um, it is the fact that you can see somebody constantly with all these social media avenues. And then all of a sudden they are no longer, they have cut off access to you and how painful that would be. Because before social media, I mean, if you stopped dating someone, you didn't have to see them anymore. Right. I mean, hell, I moved. Like I, you don't have to ever, they are never on your mind. They're never in your presence. Unless you have kids with them. Yes. And well, I'm yeah. talking about when I was, when younger. I was younger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That it was just not as big of a deal, but ghosting is only because we have this technology now. So, okay, for there's, anyone there's listening like, who is a ghoster, what yes. is the alternative in saying, instead of saying, I will never, you know, see you again, what is the best thing for somebody who wants to end something? How about how it used to be when we were younger before social <laughs> media? It it's was, not you, it's me. <laughs> Listen, I think honesty is always the best policy, and I don't think you need to be mean about it, but... I've dated people and thought, I don't think they're the one for me. And I've, you know, and you work up the courage to say to someone, listen, I really like you. You're great, but you're not the one for me. Um, and you can't force chemistry and we don't really yeah. have that. And I hope you can understand. But hey, you know, don't be a stranger. Keep in touch. Yeah. And so that's great. So that person is also showing courage. And then they're also not injuring the other person. I mean, the other exactly. person might, their feelings might still be hurt. And rejected. They yeah. rejected. Yeah. But it's... That feeling is not the same thing as the abandonment abuse feeling, right? Right. Because at least there was someone who gave you some closure. Yeah. Like unfinished business is painful because mm -hmm. you always think, well, what if? Yeah. What if What if he was going through something and he came back and, and he has an explanation or what if this or what if that? And to be honest, you know, most of these people that are doing the ghosting – it's not like they're gone forever because of social media. They, yeah. They'll still watch your Instagram stories, and they might even like or comment on your things. Yeah. And so I actually – I took the road of blocking and was like, no, if you want to treat me like that, yeah. then you don't get to have access to seeing my life. You know, And that – it took me months to do it. It's not like I just was angry and did it. It was very purposeful. Like you don't get to have access to my life because that's a privilege and you don't deserve it because of how you treated me. You know, Because a lot of these ghosting people will still like check up on you. I think – okay. Uh, yeah, because I had heard on another podcast. I don't remember which one I was listening to, but it was something along the lines of – I think the topic had to do with dating and with ghosting. And there was this question of why is it that an ex will look at Instagram stories? Does it mean anything? And the overwhelming response is it means nothing. But what happens is for the person who is missing that ex, it probably releases that bit of dopamine that you're saying that it brings that back. Yep. And I think that your advice is perfect. If somebody has broken up with you, if they've been disrespectful, if they've said, I no longer want contact with you, then they should not have access to your Instagram. Cut them out. Yeah. There's no reason for them to be in your life anymore. And you're right. It is a privilege. If they've been rude at all, then just say, nope, you don't get to see this. Yeah. That's the route I took. But it took, like, 
it doesn't happen overnight because when you get rejected, when you feel rejected, you've been broken up with, Mm -hmm. you feel like something's wrong with you for a little while, right? And it took, I think right after I turned 40, I had this aha moment and I was like, you know what? I deserve someone way better. Like I deserve someone who would give me the courtesy of that conversation. Yeah. Like, and maybe I think I'm awesome because it's going (laughs) to help me get through this. Maybe I'm not that awesome. But for right now, I think I'm awesome. You know, and I deserve way better than that. And why does he get to see my life? That's not fair. And to be honest, I don't want to see pictures of him and his girlfriend. That just (laughs) brings me down. Like I saw that he moved on maybe with this, maybe in this particular case. (laughs) But what I'll say when he did it before this particular person, he actually had a girlfriend maybe like eight or nine months later, he met someone else. And I saw this on Instagram, right? And I thought, wow, she's really cute. And so my friends and I would go check out her Instagram. And she's also a public figure. And so we would check her out. And I swear, like, after a year of kind of watching her, we were like, man, we want to be friends with her. She's awesome. (laughs) Like, you know, I'm really rooting for her now. And I found myself, like, really liking her. Yeah. And, like, pulling for her. But I'm like, you know, you go, girl. It's random. But there's another guy that I dated you know, like a few years back. And at the time I found out through Facebook that he was also dating someone else. Uh And so I started watching her Facebook and you could tell the moment that he like ended things with her, right? Because all of a sudden there were all these inspirational quotes from like Pinterest being posted Uh about how, you know, love is shitty and like women will (laughs) survive. And it's all of these quotes about like, just love and men. And women tend to do that. They find Mm -hmm. a quote that they really connect with and then they share it with their audience with no real explanation. So this girl posts and I'm like, oh, he must have broken up with her. Well, then she goes on to be like a beach body coach and dyes her hair blonde and she ran this marathon. And I was watching her journey after (laughs) thinking like, I'm so proud of you, girl. Like you really came out of that. You know, breakup looks good on you. Like good for you coming out of the storm and making yourself even better. I feel like that's how you know you're a good person. (laughs) Like, I'm a good person. I'm not rooting for anyone to fail in life. No, yeah, it's true. I'm wondering if part of getting over the heartbreak is all of a sudden you recognize that brain fog, the brain injury, and you kind of reorient your goals toward the self-care stuff. And it can lead you in directions where it can actually make you meet somebody who's more matched to you. Because when you start doing the things that you really care about— Instead of worrying about trying to draw attention from somebody else, when you do the things you care about, then you end up attracting the people that you should be attracting. Right. As opposed to just setting out to try and attract somebody. If you're not thinking about it, you're just worried about what brings you joy, then that puts you in the setting where you would meet somebody who would match you. If you're in the right mindset. And I think that's one of the myths about love is that you can force yourself to fall out of love or in love with someone. You know, or that you can control those emotions after a breakup. Or, you know, when I talk about self-care, I'm talking about do things that at the very least in the short term make you feel good. And they're not going to be long-term fixes, but they'll get those those dopamine levels up a little bit. Mm -hmm. And maybe along the way you'll meet someone great, right? Yeah. But, you know, none of these things are going to be like quick fixes, uh, long-term fixes, like eating a gallon of ice cream is uh-huh. not a long-term fix. It feels good in the moment. But, you know, that's sort of when you go through a heartbreak or a breakup, you oftentimes don't have control over how you feel. Even if you, you know how many times I've said, I want to wake up tomorrow. Please, God, let me wake up tomorrow and not think of this person ever again or crave that person. 
that would be so great if I could just like amnesia, forget that person existed. It doesn't actually happen. And there is so much growth in the heartbreak. I think you really, it is, it is an opportunity to get to know yourself better and kind of what you're capable of. I The lessons in retrospect are always really helpful, but during the storm, they suck. But once you know, like, listen, I went through a really painful divorce that I didn't choose. But I know that if I can survive that, I can survive anything. I mean, I, I survived that and learned how to be a single mom to four-year-old twins and started a business and had a career with four legit jobs between all these hospitals yeah. and universities. And if I can survive that, I know that I can survive more, you know. And oftentimes I have to draw on that. Or sometimes, you know what, I try to put things into perspective a lot, mm -hmm. even for my kids. And my kids will, they're both involved in travel team sports, right? And they'll, sometimes my daughter will say that math test is going to be really hard. But you know what, I do hard things in the gym all the time, you know, like with gymnastics. And I know I can do it because I do hard things all the time. Oh, good. And I like to tell my kids stories about our ancestry. Yeah. And so my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. And that's like the ultimate resilience, right? And yeah. And you think, listen, I came from a long line of people who got through hard and yeah. did it gracefully. So if, if I know anything about myself, it is that like – this dickhead may have ghosted me and broken my heart, but I am resilient because I come from a family of people who survived the worst conditions. And if yeah. they can survive that, I can definitely survive this. Yeah. Like, let's put it into perspective. What happens when, I mean, well, when you said something about, like, about attraction, when you just see somebody and it just clicks. So I know that we we have an idea about what's going on with lust and everything, but is there such a thing as seeing somebody across the room and locking eyes with them and all of a sudden, oh my goodness, or I don't know, or how I want to believe how that. does attraction it just, even it happen? happen to me? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I want to believe that. Yeah, there's you know this also gets into spirituality. Was it meant to be? I mean, I don't think there's anything you can control about attraction. Well, I know for me, when I'm attracted to somebody, I haven't said I, there's no rational part of my brain that has said you will be attracted to this person. It happens. That's right. It just you're just struck by it. Yeah. And um, yeah. And then what you do with that after? I mean, that's a different story. But that attraction itself, I don't know if there's any rhyme or reason to it. There's not, other than the attraction stimulates certain neurochemicals, like what mm -hmm. we talked about in the beginning, mm -hmm. and those neurochemicals will drive behavior in a certain way, you know, at the, the movie Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, God. Right. It was a long time ago. <laughs> but, you know, he – I read the books before, right? And I really liked them. That's a whole other re – there's a whole other reason why. <laughs> they weren't necessarily well written, but the story was – Women want to feel desired yes. and adored, okay? And that man did a great job of making this woman feel desired. That's, that's what that's every what woman wants. That's why those books were popular. Well, that's that's what one of my friends was saying is that one of the reasons, let's say, when it comes to sex work, why you have much more of a clientele of men um, – of, of female sex workers for men as opposed to women getting male sex workers. Right. And the reason is because men don't need that, have to feel desired. But what women are looking for, or that's what makes the thing attractive, is yeah. to feel desired. And that's why a male sex worker doesn't really work for women. No, yeah, but it's well, true. But like the Fifty Shades of Grey thing, like he, you have to think he sees this woman, right? Mm -hmm. And he feels this instant 
locking eyes. There's something about her. It drives his behavior to go to where she lives, to the store she works at. And she's terribly plain. And she's very plain. And you don't understand it. But, like, his behavior is not normal for him. Yeah. And he's driven by these neurochemicals Uh that are driving that behavior, making him do things he never does. (laughs) Like negotiate on his own contract. Let me ask you this. This would bring it up into something that's been in the news over the last year and this discussion about, like, let's say sexual harassment and this question about how men behave toward women. What do you think about that when there's talks about, well, like, yeah, that's the way that men are or boys will be boys. What is going on in your mind when you see that as a neuropsychologist as opposed to, let's say, cultural training? What's happening there? I think that they uh, misread social cues. Uh I think there's misreading of social cues. I think that there is a communication barrier Mm -hmm. on both sides. But certainly there's a biological – there's something biological happening where men – their impulse control is disinhibited. And has that been culturally accepted? And now it's not accepted, but like I think, but so for example, somebody of an older generation mm-hmm. might not see something wrong with, you know, the way that a man would respond to a woman at work and saying something about the way that she looks, some kind of a sexual comment, thinking that that's normal. Yeah. And, well, back then it was. Mm-hmm. You know, even in... Up until probably the 90s, mm-hmm. early 2000s, did people – did women come forward with how they were treated? And so I think it was very commonplace, in especially in larger corporations, yeah. bigger workplaces. I think I'm just curious about what is normal male behavior. What's normal male behavior or what is, what is okay? If we go back evolutionary, right, uh-huh. um, men are hunters. Their entire survival depends on hunting – and providing. And and so they will first and foremost do that. I mean, the legacy of their last name. Yeah. You know, it depends on the woman they choose, whether she can have children. I mean, like, think about the very basics here. Mm-hmm. So women, I think that men are still driven by the hunting a little bit. And I think that's also why some men in the dating world, they hunt, they kill, they eat, they leave. They've already eaten for the night. (laughs) Nice way to put it. Um, But that's a whole other topic. I'm telling you this Alison Armstrong because she really talks about a lot of those gender differences. Okay. Yeah. Well, Jenna, how can people get in touch with you? I'm just going to throw out here. I know that we're talking about you being a neuropsychologist, but she's also a skincare business fabulous woman. So... I own a big skincare company. Yeah, I no, do. I mean, it seriously. So if you want really to get hooked random. up, I mean, so Jenna is absolutely gorgeous. We should just throw that out there. And <laughs> <laughs> if you want to have the beautiful skin as well, and then also any questions about neuropsychology, how can people get in touch with you? I am on Instagram, the Dr. Jenna, the D-R-J-E-N-A, uh-huh. Jenna with one N. Great. Anyway, this was fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening, and I am just wishing you a wonderful 2020. Bye.